How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. You think if I start drinking whiskey now, I'll still be sober by the end of this Titanic episode? I don't, no. I don't think you'll be sober by the end of the intro, Gary. I, I think if you, if you start if you start drinking whiskey now, I think that you'll be drunk before Leonardo DiCaprio is cast in Titanic. <laughs> And, That's and, the goal, then. That's the goal. <laughs> well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people that made them. That's a good intro. I should That's have good. written that down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Luckily like, for you, almost we like you're a professional it. or something. <laughs> Luckily for you, we have it on record, Gary. As that so all yeah. came out, I was like, "Man, that's that's actually that's the that's the one that should happen every." I episode. honestly thought you had prepared that, and I was proud of you. Oh, thanks. No, <laughs> off the cuff. <laughs> off the cuff. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I'm co-host Justin Bishop, and I'm writer comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. Guys, I got to say, this series has been a long road getting from there to here. These episodes have taken a long time, but the time is finally here to see Jimmy Cameroon's dream come alive at last, where he touched not the sky, but the depths of the icy Atlantic. In this part six of our series titled The Man of Tomorrow. How many people do you think are going to get that, Todd? Was that, a Star, Trek, was that a Star Trek Enterprise reference? Yeah, yeah, it uh. is. And, and, <laughs> and you know what? That some, not all the jokes are for the audience. That one's for me. No. <laughs> Luckily, yeah. Todd, Todd has just gotten over about uh, with COVID. Yes, uh, which I'm glad you're you're feeling better, Todd. Your voice Thank sounds you. great. Honestly, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a very nice sexy, baritone. Right? Oh yeah. Um, oh, but yeah. this is the one and only time that any dumb thing Todd says throughout the episode we can actually blame on COVID brain. Um, <laughs> oh, so I'm sure is, there'll be more. This is your mulligan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it almost uh, felt snake pit for a minute. I'm gonna call for work, <laughs> and then yeah, we made it here. Yeah, we got uh, it. We 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 recorded. We're recording much later but um i think we're still unlike james cameron we're still going to meet our release date yes <laughs> as, nice. as, as scheduled hey you guys know what what episode of the podcast this is no 69, 69. Ah, <laughs> yes. oh, yeah, which is great because right. there's a great kate winslet 69 story later in the show <laughs> <laughs> inside uh, that old car right no, yeah it's, that would uh, be very difficult to be honest that, it would I be mean, difficult <laughs> it's it, an alternate scene it was in you know, like a very few very limited release like not a lot of people saw if that. i could walk it back i would actually have used that joke as a david warner joke uh 69 <laughs> joke for him but i didn't so uh well can't we can't go back in time but uh since since i've been digging into jim cameron a little bit more and more i do want to start off with something have you guys heard of Harold and the Purple Crayon. Yeah, the book, the kids' book. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's so it, it, for for the people who don't know, he like draws with a crayon, and if he, you know, he wants to see the moon, he doesn't have the moon, so he draws a moon, and uh, 
it's just, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, I was reading some interviews with Jim Cameron. I, I liked this quote from him. He said, the road to success is like Harold in the purple crayon. You draw it for yourself. You have to imagine it first, and then you have to draw it, and then you have to walk it. Some people fall into good luck. Some people have it handed to them. But I think the great majority map it out for themselves. And, I love that. Uh, that's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it's a, a nice quote, quote from James yeah. Cameron. And it was it was good. I was listening to him on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And and the, one of the questions came up. I was like, what do you think your biggest failure is in your career? And he was like, I don't think that I have anything I would call like a big failure. And which sounds cocky. Uh, from James Cameron, which you would imagine is right. But uh, <laughs> it actually works out because what he was saying is, as he goes on to mention, he was like, I guess professionally, you could say the abyss because it did not meet the money goal that probably we had at the time. He said, but if I had not made the abyss, I could not have made Titanic. Yeah, And uh, he says that that was a big part, all the things he learned from the abyss, including from not only technology, but from just from pacing and plot and that sort of things, things he messed up. He thought he had messed up as the, as far as like the pacing of the story and like where things peaked and fell and stuff that he got to correct in Titanic. And so he said even there, that was a, a learning experience that helped him. Well, I, I think that's that's uh, cool that you should mention that because that's something I've kind of been thinking a lot about with James Cameron, uh, and I'd planned on on bringing it up on either this or the next episode. But what uh, what what's what I've really noticed, like digging deep into the making of all these movies and his career, is that every one of his movies relies on the previous movie that he made, even mm. the Terminator. Because remember, he got that dumb fever dream when he went back to France to try to like figure out what the hell was going on with Piranha 2. And then he had this dream that led to the Terminator, right? Uh, and every single thing, you know, and the Terminator leads into him doing Aliens because if he had not been able to pull off the Terminator, Fox wasn't going to let him do Aliens. And it goes on and on. The, uh, the stuff, especially the abyss to Titanic, like that is a very, uh, I mean, there's a lot, and we're going to get into a lot of like the technology and stuff that they used on Titanic is stuff that he kind of started with on the abyss uh same thing with you know the cg that they're using in terminator 2 to create uh the the t-1000 you know that that even works its way into titanic with some of the motion capture stuff which of course is an early version of the technology that created avatar you know like mm -hmm. every movie builds on the one before it's like he's going in a progression and every none of his movies could have existed without the movie that he made before it which i think is really really cool you know yeah. like it, it's a really cool to see him go on on that path it's it's really fun to watch he's such a determined guy it's interesting even even the stuff about him being a tyrant uh that we're going to talk about or the, him being so hard to deal with because he he just he has to do the thing he's going to do i read more about his dad you know like his dad wasn't very supportive of him obviously his dad was has never been supportive of him, even after he made fucking Titanic and made billions of dollars. Yeah, uh, he, it's, th it's, he yeah. thought this was a fad. This, yeah. is, this, is, this is just not going to work. He said that maybe half of his motivation was that he had to just not let his dad be right about yeah. any of this, <laughs> that he had to succeed. It's good a uh, reason as any. <laughs> I've got another little quote from him here, and this why I won't go long, as long as I did on the last episode with some of his stuff, but I like this too, because uh, it, it, it tells a little bit about him, I think. He's talking about keeping your word in a lot of it. I assume that doesn't apply to uh, your budget or schedule, but uh, <laughs> the fact that he's going to get stuff done that he says he's going to do. Uh, he says, when you're working in a public art form like filmmaking, you don't really need self-doubt. 
because if it's bad, you're going to hear exactly what's wrong with it. And if it's good, you'll hear what's good about it. There are plenty of other people who will inform you. So self-doubt is not necessary. You can set that one aside. Just drop it out the door. What you need is a lot of confidence to stand up to the slings and arrows, the barrage of negativity. We exist in peer environments, and when we're on the outside and we're trying to get in, all our peers are like us and just a bunch of friends or people with similar interests. None of them think you're special. They think they're special. So very few people are going to give you encouragement. I think ultimately your word becomes the most important thing that you have. It's the most important currency you can have. Having a successful film is very important as well, but in the long run, your word is the most important thing. And if you say you're going to do something, you have to do it. I think that's what saw me through on Titanic. Titanic was in some ways the roughest project that I've ever been involved with. And what saw me through on that was that I had a relationship with the people who were quite rightly panicking, but they never completely panicked because they knew who I was. And we always treated each other with respect. I always did what I think was the right or ethical thing throughout that. Even though it was costing me millions of dollars personally, right out of my pocket to do it, I felt I had to do it or they would never trust me again on another film. And I think that's ultimately the most important currency that you reap from any situation. So uh, that's, that's a setup good, yeah. for, for, for Titanic there. Yeah, I think so. Well, I've got another setup for Titanic as long as we're reading quotes. All right, here, let's Gary, do it. Cause, cause, uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, we, we uh, first of all, I want to establish, you know, we've talked about that Rebecca Keegan book, The, the Futurist, which me and Gary have both read. Uh, that was a great resource for this episode. But also I want to acknowledge uh, Paula Parisi's uh, is a book called Titanic and the Making of James Cameron, uh, an entire book, about 230 pages, uh, solely about the making of Titanic, uh, which I read for this episode. And it is a great read. What Honestly, one of the best books about making movies uh, that I've ever read as far as the amount of detail and the, ma- the amount of access that she was given. Uh, it's a really outstanding book. If, and, and there are obviously we can't cover everything that was in that book or this would be an eight hour episode. Uh, So uh, I would highly recommend going out and reading that. It's a really great companion piece to what we're doing here. Uh, And it was a really great resource, but I say that to say that both of those books contain a quote. I think it's actually in the very beginning of the Titanic book, or it might be at the beginning of one of the chapters, but I think it's the very beginning of the book. If, uh, if I remember correctly, but it's not a quote by James Cameron. It's a quote by Quentin Tarantino from his appearance on the Howard Stern show where he says, he's telling a joke. This Hollywood guy dies and goes to heaven. Peering through the pearly gates, he glimpses someone riding overhead in a crane with a movie camera and says, I didn't know James Cameron was dead. St. Peter replies, no, that's God. He only thinks he's James Cameron. Mm. Ah. Nice. (laughs) Which I think is a good setup for the rest of this episode as well. Yeah. (laughs) So James Cameron, you know, by the mid-90s, he was a very well-established hit maker. Uh, he made a lot of successful films. All of his films really had been hits to varying degrees. The Abyss may be the one uh, outlier there, but even The Abyss wasn't like a total flop. And it was a, uh, you know, as we discussed, I think creatively, it was very successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his last couple prior to this movie uh, were massive money makers, you know. Uh, but he also was kind of gaining a reputation for being a tyrant on set and for spending a lot of money, both. Terminator 2 and True Lies had broken records for their budgets. They were both called the most expensive film of all time, back to back, you know. Uh, And he was also seen as an egomaniac who had a laser-like focus who would stop at nothing to get his films made the way that he wanted them made. 
Uh, and I think that goes kind of back to that quote from him that Gary read. But the production of his next film certainly wouldn't help his reputation in that regard. Uh, by time it was complete, he was the most notorious director in Hollywood. Uh, if the press at the time were to be believed, and there was a lot of press at the time, James Cameron was a dictator on set. He was a guy who would scream at his cast and crew, someone who would put the folks working for him through hell, both physically and mentally. Now, some of those reports were more or less accurate, but a lot of them were highly exaggerated. But on top of it all, he'd also spend more money to make that film than anyone ever had. And this was on a film that was a far cry from the types of movies that were dominating the box office in the 1990s, and a far cry from anything that he had done prior to that. But of course, there was a big payoff, uh, because when all was said and done, the film in question would end up being one of the most successful box office hits of all time. Uh, it received the best reviews of Cameron's career, and it went on to win 11 Academy Awards. Uh, we're talking, of course, you guys know, we're talking about James Cameron's 1997 film, Titanic. Take a journey. Back in time. In search of a mystery. Locked beneath the sea. This January, you will be given the key. We're going to America! Run away! The water is freezing and there aren't enough boats. Half the people on the ship are going to die. Now, with the popularity of this film, the historical nature of the story, uh, it should go without saying, but as we say on every episode, unlike flotation vests and lifeboats, spoilers abound. So, Gary, I'm going to need you to make sure uh, you watch the movie before you listen to this episode, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done it. I've Let's finally spoil- done it. 25 yeah, we're gonna, years later, I want to spoil the ending, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we finally got Gary to watch this movie. Yeah. This this is honestly getting Gary to watch Titanic was the main reason I wanted to do a James Cameron series. (laughs) It's all, it's all been leading up to this. This This was it. it. This is it. (laughs) (laughs) How do you, how do you go through your whole life? Never having seen Titanic. (laughs) Now you have to. And, and you know, what's funny too, is just uh, on a side note on my social media, when I even posted that I had seen Titanic for the first time, it got plenty of reaction. Like, people, people going, what the fuck? Like, well, the first yeah, time ever? People like, telling their, today. and people just spouting off their memories of Titanic. So yeah. it was, That's it was nice. just interesting. I was, yeah. I was just like this, this movie, say what you will. It, it, it made an impact on people. It, it sparks oh, yeah. a reaction in people. So the first seeds of what would eventually grow into Titanic went way back, more than a decade before the film's release. Uh, Cameron, of course, he'd been familiar with the story of the doomed ship. He had read Walter Lord's 1955 nonfiction book, A Night to Remember, when he was a kid. Uh, He had also seen the 1958 film adaptation of that book. But his obsession really began in 1985 when he saw a National Geographic Explorer documentary about oceanographer Robert Ballard's discovery of the wreck. First time anyone had ever dive down to see the wreck. Uh, Not only was he fascinated by the footage of the wreck itself, but he was fascinated with how the footage was achieved. It was achieved with the use of remotely operated vehicles, otherwise known as ROVs. This was like the stuff of science fiction for James Cameron. Remember, he's a science nerd. You know, uh, these this is science fiction stuff, seeing parts, seeing things that no one had ever seen before. Only these were filmed in the oceans of our planet instead of in outer space. 
And as you can imagine, the concept and the footage that he saw greatly inspired The Abyss just a couple of years later. Cameron's first notes about a Titanic film or a potential Titanic film are actually dated way back in 1987 before The Abyss even came out. And here's how his notes read. Do story with bookends of present day scene of wreck using submersibles intercut with memory of a survivor and recreated scenes of the night of the sinking. A crucible of human values under stress. A certainty of slow impending doom. He has metaphor in parentheses. Division of men doomed and women and children saved by custom of the times. Many dramatic moments of separation, heroism and cowardice, civility versus animal aggression. Needs a mystery or driving plot element woven through with all this as background. Uh, And that's a pretty succinct summary of what we would eventually get with Titanic, except for any mention of a romantic plot. Although the mystery or driving plot element he talks about is certainly what became the romance between Jack and Rose. So it's kind of cool that he had this thing mapped out pretty much immediately other than actual like story, you know, story beats. But he had the plot down for what he wanted to do a full decade before the movie came out. Yeah, I think that just goes to show like he's not a dummy. Like he knows no. what he's doing. <laughs> and this guy, he's always filing away ideas. Like he's yeah. always got he's got a, like a run once computers came into it. He has like a running file that's just a list of ideas over and over and over that he can go back and refer to later on. And he did file this idea away for a few years. Uh, and then in a moment of serendipity, one night in 1992, for no particular reason, so this is in between Terminator 2 and True Lies, uh, he pulled a VHS copy of A Night to Remember off his shelf. Just kind of saw it sitting on the shelf, decided, hey, yeah, that sounds good. I'll watch that tonight. He watched it for the first time in many, many years. And watching the film for the first time, new ideas for a potential Titanic film started popping into his mind, including the addition of a love story and the use of modern day robotics to get footage of the actual wreck. Cause remember he'd been fascinated by these ROVs used in that 1985 uh, documentary, but this technology was continually getting better and better. So he knew that he could get even better footage if he really wanted to. Uh, and as it so happens, Cameron's old friend, Al Giddings, remember Al Giddings, we talked about him in, in the abyss. He was the underwater cinematographer that he had worked with on that. And he had a oh, background yeah. in, in doing under, he was kind of the modern day Jacques Cousteau, you know, mm-hmm. doing all these underwater documentaries. Well, Al Giddings also had an interest in the Titanic and he had recently directed a documentary about the wreckage called treasures of the deep. So Cameron's in his office or his apartment or wherever he, he watches that VHS of a night to remember. And then he starts rifling through his mail, you know, like, like the same night. And he sees an invitation to Al Giddings documentary, to the premiere of Al Giddings documentary. Uh, So that's why I called it a moment of serendipity because this is all kind of happening at the same time. It's like it was meant to be. Uh, So he goes to the premiere and he, he became really intrigued at the watching this documentary at the footage of the filmmakers working with the crew of a Russian research ship called the Keldish. Uh, which had two of the only submersibles in the entire world. They were called the the Mir 1 and Mir 2 that were capable of going to the depths needed to film the Titanic wreckage. So after the film ended, he and Giddings discussed the possibilities of making a narrative film about the Titanic using real footage of the wreck. And they're, you know, Giddings is there as the director of this film. Everyone's trying to meet him, but he's just engrossed in this conversation with James Cameron. They were there like until after midnight, the janitors had to kick them out so that they could clean the theater at the end of the thing. Uh, Cause they just, they were just like into it. They were just really excited about this idea. So within a few weeks, he and Giddings, they had their visas and they were off to Russia to meet with a doctor and Anatoly Sagalovich. 
and his team of oceanographers, they're, uh, he's the uh, guy who's basically in charge of the Keldish, this Russian research vessel, which is the largest research vessel in the world, we should probably mention. Wow. Uh, it is enormous. Uh, Cameron and Giddings were taken ab aboard the Kaldish. They were given a tour of the ship. And during their discussions, Cameron Giddings and Sagalovich, they talked about the possibility of somehow mounting a 35 millimeter camera to the front of one of the mirror subs while using the other sub to somehow light the scene, like putting lights on it or something along those lines. This is something that had never been done before. Nobody had ever submerged a 35 millimeter camera this way at all. Yeah, and these guys were kind of iffy about it too. They weren't sure like how exactly to take any of this, but um, I, I read a little bit that Cameron, you know, kind of presented this as, you know, this is different though. This is a Hollywood movie. It's not a documentary. This is a work of fiction. Yeah. Um, we're not trying to get like super sciencey. It's, you know, this is a different way to present your stuff it'll show the world what you guys can do and how your stuff works. Uh, the stuff you've invented works and it'll be in this commercial film. So it means more people are going to see it and become more interested in what you're doing. And that leads to more, you know, money for you and more funding. Yeah. Well, and the thing about that is, is that their, their, their funding and for research had slowed down considerably with the fall of the Soviet union. So they, they were not getting to do as much on the Keldish. They were not getting to go on as many like explorations and things like that since the Soviet Union had fallen a few years earlier. Cameron would end up go, he, you know, he'd go on to film True Lies before revisiting the idea of diving down to the Titanic. But once True Lies was released, he decided that Titanic would be his next film. So he starts to shape his story a little bit more, start, starts actually writing a screenplay or a scriptment. And as he's doing this, he decided on the idea of a doomed romance between a first-class female and a third-class male. Now, the reason that he decided on this uh, was, was kind of practical because historically, first-class women on the Titanic had the highest rate of survival on the ship, about a 97% survival rate. Third-class men, like Jack, only had about a 16% survival rate because, <laughs> you know, it's women and children first, but also by class. So Jack's at the bottom of the totem pole there, you know, uh, well, so you've leave it to James Cameron to stick with the statistics and the science yeah. and the whole thing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Didn't change much about that. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but that does instantly create tension in the story, you know, so it, it makes sense. And Cameron, when he started planning this, he had, he had planned on Titanic being a bit smaller than his previous films. You know, he, he knew that this wasn't the kind of story that, that was like a guaranteed box office success. It was a period piece. It was a story where everyone knows the ending uh, and there's no chance for a sequel. Uh, so he thought he'd be able to make it for, you know, about 80 million bucks, which is a modest budget by James Cameron standards. How? Cause I mean, it's just a boat in the just ocean. Yeah. Just we're not going it. crazy. Yeah. You yeah know? Just sink we're, a boat. <laughs> we're only going a little underwater. Anybody for, for can a sink minute. a boat. You know? I could sink a boat. Right. It's not <laughs> like some kind of space fantasy here. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and and make no mistake, by the way, all of this, Cameron had this idea in some interviews I listened to where he talked about, you know, he, he knew that like he was interested in a lot of the sciencey stuff, obviously. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, but he knew that the Jack and Rose story was the only way to keep people interested through the whole thing. He had that had to have that thread. Yeah, he um, almost made this movie as an excuse to actually get to dive down to the Titanic and do the sciencey stuff. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that because <laughs> I saw I, there was an interview and uh, it was, it was around the time that uh, whatever it was, it goes to the abyss or something. It was whenever it was one of them around the time when he goes back to Titanic. And in the, in that interview, the guy's asking, he says, people today are fond of asking you why you went back to the Titanic. But I've read that one of the initial focuses of in the movie Titanic was precisely because you did 
want to dive to the wreck. You started the movie by being interested in the wreck and the movie kind of followed. And James Cameron says, I can actually be way more blunt than that. I was trying to figure out a way to dive to the Titanic wreck. And the only tools at my disposal were that I could tell a major studio that I'd make a movie about it if they'd fund it. Yeah. So basically he just got, <laughs> yeah. he just, he just get, got Fox to fund his scientific exploration of the Titanic. Right. <laughs> so in early 1995, Cameron made his pitch to Peter uh, Chernin. Peter Chernin is the uh, president of 20th Century Fox at the time who would become Cameron's, he had become Cameron's ally during the development of True Lies. Uh, and it was a pretty simple pitch. When he walked into his office, he brought a coffee table book of paintings of the Titanic called Titanic and Illustrated History by Don Lynch. Uh, he flipped open to the centerfold image of the book, which is of the ship. It's halfway sunk halfway underwater, lights still blazing on it, you know, reflecting off the still water, lifeboats escaping into the night. It's a really great painting. And so he opens it up, shows this book to, to Peter Chernin and says, Romeo and Juliet on this ship. Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic. That's what we're doing. And that was it. That was his pitch. And that's, that's not a bad pitch, although I'm sure there's some people we'll probably talk about later who might not have been on board for that. <laughs> well, uh, he uh, it's it's not as crazy a pitch as, let's say, getting Lance Hendrickson to kick down the door as the Terminator in, in a producer's <laughs> office. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> it's a lot simpler than that. That was it, really. A book and a single sentence. That's what it sold. It. And Chernin was sold on the idea. Uh, the two spent the next few hours discussing the story's dramatic potential and the book and story that Cameron had in mind for it. You saying that just made me like picture James Cameron standing in the uh, office of the execs and like bringing Kate Winslet and trying to drown her in a pool of <laughs> <laughs> like, like, Look at that. Do you care about her? Do you be like this? Do you want her to live? This is why you make this movie. <laughs> he just murders Leonardo DiCaprio in the office. Right. All right, so we're not using him. Someone... <laughs> and so... that's what happened to River Phoenix, really. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so anyway, then comes the real sales pitch. Cameron had to convince Chernin to finance underwater dives to the actual wreck of the Titanic. Like we said, this is kind of his motivation for this in the, in the first place. Uh, footage of the wreck was crucial to the film that Cameron wanted to make. And, and sure, they could pull it off with CGI probably, but the dives to the actual Titanic would be, if not cheaper, at least no more expensive than using CGI. Plus having actual footage of the wreck would generate a lot of publicity for the film and could be uh, it could be become a major part of the film's marketing and thus the budget for it could actually be considered part of the film's marketing budget. So that was kind of how he sold him on it. So Fox agreed. They agreed to a dive budget of about $4 million. Uh, and Cameron then had to figure out exactly how the hell he was going to shoot the footage of the Titanic. Cause remember he's trying to do something nobody's done before, which is, I feel like we've said that on every episode of this yeah. <laughs> the series so far. Uh, he's doing the something that nobody's ever done before. Again. <laughs> again. Once again. Uh, all the previous footage of the Titanic had been achieved by poking a lens of a small camera to the viewport of a submarine. Uh, and these are really thick viewports. Like, I think Bill Paxton in, in the movie says they're, they're, you know, it's like nine inches of glass, you know. Uh, so it's not the best footage. So Cameron wanted a camera that he could put on the outside of the subs, get a more 
a more clear image so that he could and also pan and tilt and maneuver the camera in a more cinematic way. He'd have more control over what the camera was picking up. The problem with that is that the Titanic's wreckage is about 13,000 feet underwater, where the pressure is about 5,000 pounds per square inch. Jeez. So figuring you can't just put a camera on the end of the sub. As soon as you get a, a few hundred feet below water, that camera's just going to explode. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so figuring out how to get a camera on the outside of the sub that would work uh, fell to Cameron's brother, Mike, who was an aerospace engineer. He'd helped Cameron with several of the hurdles he had to cross uh, to film the Abyss's underwater scenes. We talked all about those during the Abyss episode. Mike is, if James Cameron's a genius, like Mike Cameron, I think is like a super genius. Like this guy is legit. <laughs> he is he is incredibly smart. I bet Mike's listening to this right now. Like, might, yes. Yeah, yes. fuck you, Jim. Now's my you time that, in the sun. Dickhead, you hear that? I'm the super genius. <laughs> all right so let's go to, let's get a little nerdy here because i had to look into a little bit i did a, i did a lot of research on the actual titanic wreck because i'm mm. fascinated by it uh i have been since i was a kid you know kids go through those phases where like you have every kid has like an astronaut phase and a dinosaur phase where they're into dinosaurs uh, i had those as well uh, especially dinosaurs which i think i'm probably still a little bit in my dinosaur phase uh, but i had a titanic phase when i was a kid because i had a book that i'd bought at like a museum or something on a field trip probably and it had like pictures of the titanic and like cross sections and things like that so there was a time when i was in like an elementary school that i got really into the titanic so i've always been kind of fascinated by the actual wreck so i started like looking into this a little bit more there's something that occurs at deep depths where they're filming, where they're wanting to film this, called uh, implodable volume. An implodable volume is defined by any structural shell or body that is acted upon by external pressure and contains internal gas at a lower pressure or vacuum. Now, that's kind of wordy, but basically that means that if there's air inside the camera casing that's at a lower pressure than the pressure outside of the casing, then you're going to get an implosion with the same amount of shock as a hand grenade, which could, of course, seriously damage the hull of the, sul, uh, of the sub. And if the hull is damaged enough, it could also cause the sub itself to implode, killing the entire crew, including Mike's brother, Jim. So, you know, he's got a lot riding on getting this right. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, think of uh, coffee or Michael Bean uh, in, the, yeah. in his death in the abyss. That's, exact, that's exactly what you see in that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. In the abyss. And actually, even when you see that movie, if you go back and watch it, when he dies, he dies from the implosion. Mm -hmm. uh, Cameron calls it like a reverse stick of dynamite. Uh, you, you mentioned the hand grenade. So that's another way of looking at it. And mm -hmm. um, but just to, when he explodes or he gets crushed, the glass breaks and bubbles come out. But it's just like a little bit of bubbles. Yeah. Like little tiny bubbles, because all of the air inside of the thing is compressed yeah down. <laughs> it's, so it's, he yeah. freaking thought of all of that when he, he sure did killed michael bean um <laughs> but just to reestablish, see what you're talking about no movie cameras ever been down this deep before so mm -hmm. these these housings they made were like titanium bigger than any housings that had ever gone to that depth and and the cameras were even technically like special built cameras for the project so and uh, one of the things they did, which I, you know, you probably knew this, Justin, but I did not know. They had two perforations per frame instead of the standard four perforations per frame, uh, which is basically, as I understand it, denoting like the size that these are like the holes, like on the sides on the of, side the of the film. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, but essentially it just helped the film last longer than normal because the dives are all like 15 hours long and you can't yeah. reload film 
in the right. middle of it. So how interesting. I did, actually didn't know that. That's really interesting. Hmm. Uh, but th- th- it's it's crazy how much technology they had to invent just to get this footage. Jeez. I mean, and, and, and I'm talking, I, we'll, we'll get into the other stuff with the, you know, the stuff set on the Titanic, but I'm talking about just the little bit of footage you see of the actual Titanic wreck. Like the stuff they had to invent for it is insane. <laughs> like it's crazy to me. Jeez. Um, Another one is that Cameron wanted an ROV, like the one he'd seen in that that do, you know Ballard's documentary about the wreck in the mid '80s, and his ROV, which uh, he nicknamed Snoop Dogg for reasons I, I can't quite figure out, <laughs> but it was called Snoop Dogg. You see it in the film called Snoop Dogg. To quote Jim Cameron, "We called the ROV Snoop Dogg because he was on a long leash and his job was to sneak around inside the wreck." Boom. There you go. Well, thank Show's you, over. Thanks. <laughs> thank you, Gary. <laughs> well, and he he actually wanted his ROV to be a character in the film, you know, a functional movie prop because he wanted it to work as an actual ROV and actually get footage, but he wanted you to be able to see it working in the context of the film. So to create that, he hired Western Space and Marine, which is the company that he had hired to uh, create those dive helmets that they used on the abyss. He went back to those guys, mm. you know, the, the full faceplate dive helmets. Mm-hmm. So he's got that out of the way. He, they created two different ROVs. I think the other one's called Duncan, like, like the donuts. Thanks. <laughs> and and uh, Gary, do you have a story behind that one? Do you know why that one's called Duncan? No, actually uh, you saying that uh, when I was watching it, like he said in the movie, the ones that are the one that is that it's Snoop Dogg the whole time. They treat they just it call- like it's, is the creature oh, they just like give it a two different, different ones. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. Well, here's but, here's yeah. I'm I'm surprised that I know and you guys don't. Uh-oh. So this was the the second one that they named Duncan was actually the one that they did cocaine off of. So that was it was covered in powdered <laughs> sugar. So they called it Duncan. <laughs> I see. Yeah, that does make sense. And that, uh, that's just a fa- that's just a fact that I found, guys. Yeah, was that on the IMDb like trivia mm-hmm. section? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's in there. It's in there. You got you got to dive. Call, in. Todd, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and call bullshit on that story. And and the only reason the only reason I'm calling bullshit is I happen to know. Uh, and we'll talk about this later. They're doing PCP on this trip, not oh, okay. Okay. Well, let's right, be no, honest. No, James Cameron no. doesn't even drink coffee. <laughs> that's true <laughs> so he's not no i think that that comes later because <laughs> no it's during this movie i was about to say because he definitely uh we'll get to it but he, he definitely talks about drinking tequila at one point oh no he drinks tequila he just doesn't drink <laughs> coffee oh okay <laughs> he just doesn't do caffeine yeah he's not a monster <laughs> he, come on he, he does he doesn't he, he stopped drinking caffeine a, a, a movie or two before this because james cameron's intense i don't know if you guys have caught on to that throughout I've, this heard, I've heard rumblings <laughs> about that He's intense, yeah, yeah. and caffeine makes him more intense Whoa. so like there are stories of him just like roll like after a day of shooting he's just like roaming the hotel hallways because oh he's got so much pent-up energy so he just completely cut out caffeine because he doesn't need it he's 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 uh just naturally caffeinated yeah. <laughs> God help anybody who ran into him during that time. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So August 1995, Cameron's crew meets up with the Russian scientists from the Keldish in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where they would depart to find the wreckage of the Titanic using the project named Planet Ice in order to keep an air of secrecy over what they were doing. Very few people knew about this expedition. James Cameron, obviously the whole entire crew that he's got with him. Peter Shernan, a couple of people at Fox, but very few people even at Fox knew that this was happening. Once aboard the Keldish, 
Cameron and the Russian submarine pilot spent hours practicing maneuvers using a detailed model of the shipwreck and mirror. So he's got little models as well as a small little lipstick camera that he used a lot that um, that where he could kind of plan out angles he'd wanted to shoot. So he's got this tiny little camera, like what a spy would use, you know, and he's, he's going around the wreck of the Titanic planning out where he wants the ROVs to go once he gets down there. Well, the ROVs and the mirror and the actual subs, you know, and this type of preparation was crucial because once the time came, it would take up to 10 hours to get down to the sub to the shooting location. Uh, And camera would only have 12 minutes of film once he got there. So he had to know exactly what he was going to shoot when he got there. Uh, Also, on top of that, each dive, each time they went down to the Titanic cost about 40 grand. Crap. (laughs) Yeah. For, for 12 minutes of film that may or may not be usable. So, yeah, so preparation is key. Uh, they're, they're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> How they, oh, yeah, no, this is financially sound. Yeah. Hey, it ended up being fine. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Don't doubt James Cameron, you know. True, true. Uh, so, uh, you know, the next month, September 8th, 1995, Cameron squeezed his six foot two inch frame into a seven foot wide cockpit of the mere one alongside two other guys. He's got Sagalovich and another Russian engineer in there. So the three of them are squeezed in this tiny little sub uh, and they would share that small space for the 14 hours that it would take to get to the Titanic and back on that first trip as they descended. So they're going down this first trip. The waters around them grew darker and darker. You know, they start out crystal clear. They get dark blue Navy uh, by about 900 feet below the surface. It was pitch black already they've already got and they still got 11 or twelve thousand feet left to go before they hit the bottom uh and it also grew a lot colder as they descended to just above freezing once they reached the bottom they had to find the wreckage of the titanic in complete darkness (laughs) you know and they've got some sonar and things like that but they're basically in complete darkness the port window of the mirror is only about six, six inches in diameter and they had no way to see anything on the sides or behind them so they're, that's their only field of vision is this little six inch porthole. At one point they came upon a mound of clay uh, on the ocean floor that was taller than the sub itself. And so Sagalovich, he's, he's piloting the sub and he maneuvers over the mound, but the thrusters stirred up the silt, which caused it to swirl all around the ports, blocking what little visibility they had. And then once that silt cleared, you know, it clears and then they see it, the Titanic. It's right in front of them, uh, but it's about 10 feet in front of them. And the current is pushing them quickly towards the Titanic. Uh, So they're about to crash right into it. Oh, no. (laughs) But thanks to some fancy piloting by Sagalovich, the mirror, you know, sailed upwards. It went over the guardrail of the ship, and then it landed gently right in the middle of the Titanic's deck. He landed on the deck of the wreckage. Nice. Uh, but nice. I mean that they got very lucky and James Cameron was kind of pissed that this happened because it shouldn't have happened. Uh, if they had landed a few feet to the other direction, they could have gotten stuck in an, an open, like, like a, a gaping hole basically where, and they would probably still be there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and to really appreciate it. I mean, one of the, one of the things you got to understand too, is like one of the parts, even the Russian scientists love was that like about this being a movie is that, this isn't going to be seeing it the same way you'd see in a documentary. This is like lit like a movie. Uh, right. Um, and there's a lot of models, accurate models, but there's models. Yeah, there are models. Uh, but, used. but, um, but when you see, so, so like in, in these type scenes, when you're seeing the two subs on the screen, it's models. Right. Uh, but you had one sub shooting the Titanic and then one sub is shooting the sub shooting the Titanic. Uh, and when you're seeing the sub shooting, when you're seeing the sub that shooting the Titanic, 
it's pitch black down there is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. It's, it's like without the lighting from the second sh- sub, like, I mean, you can only see what is directly lit in front of you. Right. So getting your bearings is not something that's particularly easy down there. Uh, you can't just like wander around until you like stub your toe on something. Right. Because and, if you right. run into something, you are potentially dead. Yeah. And, and yeah. same with the ROV. When you see that POV footage from the ROV, that's the real deal. Yep. Uh, but it, if you watch like on the docks, like what the ROV is shooting, it's not, I mean, they worked on the footage they used from the ROV because like, it's like I said, you can only see what the light is hitting. It is like dead black, like pitch black around yeah. all over the place, except for where the light is. And uh, this is like the first time anybody ever filmed inside the ship. Yeah. Uh, that footage you see of the, the, of the ROV from inside the ship is the first time any of that stuff had ever been seen since 1912. Yeah. But anyway, so wow. all of that to say, it's just, it's, it's a scary prospect. I imagine when you're down there, just how, and how, and to think of how, you know, cause you're, I think you're thinking of like the Titanic. You're like, how the fuck something to sneak up on you? But it's like, you can't see, you can't see yeah, anything. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're blind down there. And, and, you know, Cameron, he had studied the layout of the ship in detail. He basically knew the layout of the Titanic by heart. Like he had, he had memorized it. And, and he, he was, saved you know, that camera, by the way, sorry to cut you off, yeah. but like, I mean, he, like when it bounced, he, he turned on the like uh pan and tilt thing and like could tell where they were enough to like move the camera out of the way yeah. of getting crushed. It like almost shattered the glass dome where the camera was uh when it hit, but it ended up hitting, like he said, like a matte box that, that surrounded it and it, it was crushed, but the camera survived. Yeah. Luckily he he was able to tell because he knew the layout of the ship so well, he knew exactly where they were on the ship once they landed. He he knew the section of the Titanic that they were landed on. And he immediately got to shooting footage. And it wasn't until later, you know, and he's very like business-like in this point. He's like, I'm getting this footage. He's approaching it like a scientist, you know. Uh, he's like very focused on getting this footage. And it wasn't until later when he was back on the Keldish that the enormity of what he had seen that day really dawned on him. You know, he had just sailed through the coffin of over 15, 1,500 people. And when he realized that, he's like sitting in his his quarters, you know, on back on the ship and this dawned on him that, hey, you know, I'm not seeing this just as like a scientist, like people, people's lives, like 1500 people died on this thing. That's a big deal. And he was overwhelmed with emotion. And from that time on, he was determined to honor the place and the event and the lives that were lost, not just looking at this from a scientific aspect, but like trying to really to, just trying to really honor the, the tragedy that had unfolded. And he yeah. approached everything else from that point of view. And 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 like you said too, a little bit not not just even from a scientist scientific perspective of like what you're getting to do or seeing or how you made this thing and you can do all this shit nobody's ever done, but like to really appreciate what you're seeing, yeah, being yeah. in that moment. I mean, it's the same. Um, it's the same thing that you know Bill Paxton's character realizes by the end of the film. You know, Brock. He he uh, he's first approaching this as a treasure hunter and a scientist and an explorer. Uh, And then after he hears Rose's story, the enormity of what happened that night on the Titanic really hits him. You know, it hits hits all of them. You see him like opening that safe, like you said. Yeah, he's just like throwing shit aside. Like he's only concerned about the diamond. But uh, it's uh, 
it's it's about learning so yeah it's, it's kind of like the motif for the whole film like you're learning to appreciate the experience and the history of what's happening i think they did something like 12 double dives uh with the subs over 25 days but uh in one interview well it was what it was was in wired they had his diary through the process for the oh, dives. Cool. and cool. uh so you could read like him what he was saying through the whole thing um kind of like what you saw bill paxton doing at the beginning of the movie where has the camera on himself and he's like talking to the camera or whatever it said he said it was really on like the third or fourth dive um he said he had uh had some vodka with the russian dive mates i was thinking it was tequila but i guess it was vodka yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh he said he had gone back to his cabin and uh in he said the first few dies had drained him physically and mentally. And he said, quote, I just sat there and I started to cry thinking about the dive and everything I had seen later on in the article. He says, that's the moment my technical guard guard got let down and I kind of got overwhelmed by it all. Then I made myself a promise to always take the time on every dive to be there because otherwise I might as well have been sitting up in the ship driving the ROV there's right. no reason for me to physically be down there if I'm not going to appreciate this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now, now I don't want to go too deep into the, you know, the history on the actual Titanic. Uh, there are plenty of resources for that, including you know this movie to an extent. Uh, right. But it, it is really easy, I think, looking back on the Titanic, uh, the, the ship with modern eyes to forget how big of a deal it was back in 1912. Uh, the Titanic was the pinnacle of human engineering and the, the pinnacle of human opulence <laughs> for that matter. Uh, the, the ship cost $7.5 million to build. That's about $225 million in today's dollars. Wow. Uh, a, a top first class ticket was $3,100, which adjusted for inflation is about $92,000 thousand dollars today holy crap that's that's the top that's the the top level uh but a third class ticket which is what jack has was 32 dollars, which is about 950 dollars today wow <laughs> uh the titanic was the most luxurious most technologically advanced ship ever built uh, and it was touted at the time as unsinkable uh, which was almost true in fact out of every potential scenario there was only one way that the titanic could sink and it was the exact way that it sank. It wow. could have been hit in any other way. It could have hit that iceberg head on. It could have been hit in a different part of the ship, and it would have been fine. I mean, it would have been damaged, but it wouldn't have sank. Uh, and but the the way that it sank, the way you know the the dit, 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 you know how they they uh, the, uh, they describe it in the film as like Morse code hitting along the side. The way that it hit that iceberg in that exact way is the only way that this ship would have sank Jeez. i mean what are what are the chances of that i mean that, that's like um in the script one of the characters at the dinner scene says uh, all of life is a game of luck and that's basically what this is you know like this there are so many ways that this ship would have survived every other possible scenario and the one thing that took it down is what took it down it's wild it was that or godzilla let's be (laughs) godzilla could have taken godzilla is nowhere near nova scotia (laughs) he's got he's got several land masses in between that you that that you know of on that day lucky for them 
And there would be uh, 11 more dives after that one. So 12, like Gary said, to uh, to get the footage that Cameron needed on the wreckage of the Titanic. Uh, he even used Snoop Dogg. Uh, he took the ROV inside of the wreck, getting footage of the inside of the ship, footage that would... He had not actually planned on using that footage for the film initially. He had not planned on going inside the ship with the ROV and he just kind of couldn't help himself when he was down there. Cause it was dangerous to do because that, that cable could get snagged on something. Then they lose the whole ROV and those things cost like a million dollars, you know? So, uh, but he, he couldn't help himself. So they got that footage, which is incredible footage, you know, and it also served as a, you know, not only it's used as footage in the film, but it served as a reference for their recreation of the ship when they were building their sets later on. So yeah, it was it was crazy. Like he he talks a lot about. Uh, I can see why this episode's gonna be so long or broken up because it's uh, we're just in the the opening few minutes. Of the movie. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just it, you know they they had the book like you mentioned before. There there were like uh, photo books you know you could find of stuff, and so they kind of had to guess at some things. Mm-hmm. And even with the ROV you know, not everything's intact down there. Like it would be, uh, no. it, it would, it, the, the, I think they said like the porcelain tubs and stuff like that, the brass bed frames. Um, you can see them like in the documentary, they do like find the fireplace and, uh, there's, there's stuff that's there, but most, most things are disintegrated and, you know, just, or like covered that. in rusticles or they broke up on, I mean, the, the amount of, pressure on that impact once it once it went down and the fact that there's five thousand pounds per square inch of pressure on top of it the weight of all that water you know it's a lot of things were very, were very quickly destroyed Just yeah pulverized so <laughs> some of the stuff they did in a tank and and then they took uh examples of things like the boot and the glasses i think you see at one point or that doll's head yeah. those are things other divers have recounted seeing or something yeah, that, that footage is far too good to have been captured, uh, like far too clear, you know what I mean, to have been captured uh, on one of the dives. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that's why, like, even with the Snoop thing, they're, they're really only using the one, even though, on on, you know, they act like they send one through the, like, dining hall and one in the master stairway mm-hmm. or something like that. But it's really the same ROV um, doing both they, those things. And so then they put it in a tank and they filmed the ROV doing right. stuff so there's only you know there's only one snoop dog you know what i'm saying <laughs> that's true uh, there, there are only well, there there well, will always only be one snoop dog well i guess technically two but uh yeah man it's it's crazy to think about and then what's wild too is this that the, this is just like where they're at is like a 21 ton section of the shift ship that had broken off yeah yeah the rest of it's like a mile and a half away right and uh <laughs> You know, he he talked a little bit about how like they had tried to around this time, like somebody had tried to raise this stuff out of the ocean and they couldn't even like get it out of the ocean. It like broke apart and fell. So they're like even in like a part of that. But it's just I don't know. The actual Titanic is like a 60,000 ton yeah, uh, ship to put it in perspective. Cameron talked about that raising the Titanic thing, saying he thought that was absurd. He's like that he even more felt like their job was to respect this whole thing and the wreckage, and their intention is to film and share the photographs with people. And... Yeah, not trying to take it away from where it, it lays. Exactly. Yeah. Um. The can uh, just for what it's worth, the piano was totally Jim Cameron. He destroyed a piano with a drill. He said, "Look, it's cool though." 
Yeah. He looks, said that they, yeah. There yeah, would not pretty, be a piano surviving in yeah. there, but you know, it's yeah. Cool. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great image though. <laughs> so once this expedition was complete, Cameron's next step was to find his leads, which was going to be a little bit of a challenge because Cameron's script called for the characters to be very young. Uh, Rose is 17 years old. Jack is about 20. Uh, Cameron wanted them to be young because he felt it was very important for Titanic to be the story of first love. Cause it's like that, that more like intense, you know, that the first time you've fallen in love, uh, the the intensity of that, and he he felt like that was very important to the story, a lot which of I think passion, yeah, exactly, passion. and I think that's why I think that's what makes it work. If these were like older characters, it wouldn't work as well because it wouldn't be as believable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cameron once again worked with his casting director, Mally Finn. Remember, we talked about her in Terminator Two. She had she's the one who had discovered Edward Furlong on that movie. Uh, her first goal for this was to find an actress to play Rose. Uh, Rose, it makes sense for Rose to be the first character you find because this movie is almost entirely through Rose's eyes uh, with a few exceptions where it goes to Jack's point of view, but it's almost entirely from Rose's point of view. And she had her eyes set on a 21-year-old English actress named Kate Winslet. So Kate Winslet, she had made her film debut a couple years earlier in Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, uh, which is an incredible film. I've, I think we've already mentioned it on this show once before, but uh, I'm a big, big fan of Heavenly Creatures. It's really outstanding. Uh, and she followed that up with Ang Lee's 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, which is a role that had earned her an Oscar nomination. She was 20 years old and got nominated for her first Oscar on like her second movie. You know, uh, and she followed that up with several other period dramas. She actually got a nickname of corset kate because she had done so many period dramas where her character wore a corset even heavenly creatures is sort of a period piece because it's set in like the early 50s i believe maybe the mid 50s uh the, the fact that she had done so many period dramas though that was actually a deterrent for cameron he felt that putting someone known for period pieces into another period piece was lazy and unoriginal. So he really didn't want to cast her because of that. Uh, he preferred the likes of claire danes and Gwyneth paltrow for the role uh but Mally Finn was urging him to see this actress, Kate Winslet, and he finally did because he trusted his casting agent. And when he met with her and filmed a a, a screen test with her, he was immediately taken by Kate Winslet. He thought she was outstanding. She had all the qualities that he was looking for in Rose. Uh, And as long as she had chemistry with the actor who played Jack, she was kind of a shoe in for the role. So then they had to find Jack. She does have that special something. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, you know, are you talking about the uh, the painting scene? Boobies. No, no come on. No, they, she. I mean, she does though. Well, yeah, she does. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, this was the first viewing in a long, long time, and it was just like, oh man, she's you know, whenever she's on screen, it's just you're drawn to her. She's she got is that, like got that it's, look. It's it's a it's one of those like cliche words to use when describing an actress sometimes, but she's luminous in this role. Yeah. I uh, like she yeah. she really is. She she has like a watching it this time and I w- I've watched it several times over the last few weeks uh for the first time in many many years um she's got a Judy Judy Garland thing yeah going good, like yeah. she really does she's got a big Judy Garland thing going here she mm. uh you know I was not as locked in on Kate Winslet as as some people are I think this movie like made her a household name you know and, oh, and so sure. like everybody knows who Kate's Kate I don't think anyone is. really I mean mass audiences didn't know her before this right right and so now you know even today, like her name is known, and you know, Kate Winslet, she was in Titanic, you know, watching it for the first time. Yeah, she was definitely one of my favorite parts of it. I was like, she's, she's very good. Like, she's mm-hmm. just, she's 
She's good yeah. to watch. Fun fact. I uh, love a fun fact. James Cameron drew the painting of Kate or the, the drawing of Kate Winslet. That he was... drew all the, he drew all of Jack's paintings. Yeah. 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 And so uh, he also got some shit apparently about some of the paintings that were in uh, Kate Winslet's room that they're unpacking and stuff. Yeah. Like the fucking Picasso is not on the bottom of the ocean. I've, 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 I've seen that Picasso. Well, he says, he says <laughs> in the commentary of the movie, he's just like, he was like, we're, we're, we were aware that these paintings exist. These yeah. are replications of the paintings. He was like, <laughs> we weren't trying to say it. He's like, you know what? Screw you. He's, he's yeah. like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it is real nitpicky. You, you definitely see like a Manet floating underwater at, during you know the, the wreck. And it's like, I, I mean, we know that those exist because we've seen those paintings. We know what they look like. Like I've literally seen that, uh, that, that, that Picasso in a museum I think I don't care. It doesn't bother me. But yeah, he draws all of Jack's drawings. In fact, the close-up you see when he's drawing the Kate Winslet um, portrait, when you see the close-up of the hands drawing, that's actually James Cameron's hands. Oh, nice. Drawing. I know the yeah. signature is like based on how he signs his mm -hmm. drawings and stuff. He said that the uh, that he he didn't. She wasn't nude. They took photographs of her in the bikini. And uh, I mean, when he drew her, because she's definitely nude in the movie. Yeah, yeah. He said he said <laughs> we didn't know each other well enough for her to pose nude for me. Sure, so, well, I get that. Yeah, he said so. We photographed her in a bikini. Yeah, she's then, not Jamie Lee Curtis. Come on. <laughs> and then he said I had to quote use my imagination, which I don't know sounds mildly creepier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, granted, what I guess was that before or after they'd shot the footage. Because oh, if they'd already shot the footage, he definitely had a reference. Yeah, you know? maybe. So, so, I don't know. Anyway, we, we've we got to find an actor for Jack, right? We've got a potential we've got a potential Rose in Kate Winslet. But the search for an actor to play Jack, it kind of goes through the usual Hollywood motions, including suggestions from the studio for all the like heartthrobs of the moment. Guys like Matthew McConaughey, Chris O'Donnell, Billy Crudup. Uh, all of these were suggested by the. Can you imagine Matthew McConaughey in this role? Honestly, <laughs> I, not. It's okay. it's weird. <laughs> just, uh, just see now. See now. I want to pull some of the some of the lines and and do them in a McConaughey accent. <laughs> I saw like Christian Bale was one of them. Like really, he, yeah. he said he auditioned wow. for it, but like James Cameron didn't want two British people playing Americans. Well, and also Cameron thought a lot of these guys that the uh, studio was suggesting were too old to play the part of a twenty year old. Character, oh yeah, Cru know. Tom Cruise. I saw Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise was, like, super interested. Tom in Cruise it. wanted to do it, but he was already like ten years too old by this point, you know. Right. Uh, and Cameron actually considered Jared Leto, but Jared Leto refused to audition because he's a fucking douchebag. Uh, so I guess we dodged. <laughs> I I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I do not like Jared Leto. <laughs> well, I, I, wait, I saw wait, that. What? <laughs> I was like, of course, Jared Leto refused to audition. Yeah, he also dick. probably would have tried to also drown his fellow cast members, right. kill himself in a boat. <laughs> like, accident. I'm, I'm actually gonna die on the set. Yeah, he's uh, like, I'm so gonna kill myself because uh, I'm method. Yeah. Uh, well, we dodged that bullet, you know. Also, <laughs> but imagine if Leto had been cast and Claire Danes had been cast, and we'd have got a um oh, my so-called so life reunion. <laughs> so, in an alternate universe, Titanic is a my so-called life reunion, and yeah, it sucks. That, that's the tweet. That's it. <laughs> uh, it. It would still land as much as it would with with young people nowadays. Right. Like, sure. Yeah. What? Yeah. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Uh, Jeremy Sisto, remember that guy? He used to oh, pop yeah. up on stuff a lot. Uh, he did a, a series of screen tests. He was very close to getting the role. He screen tested with Winslet. And he also screen tested with some other actresses who were up for the part of Rose 
Um, and Cameron was actually initially resistant to the idea of Leonardo DiCaprio in the role. Uh, DiCaprio, you know, he wasn't like a big star at the time. Titanic is what made him a big star, but he was known. Uh, he was 21 years old. He was brought to Cameron's attention by Mally Finn, his casting director. And uh, Cameron thought DiCaprio seemed too scrawny and lightweight for the role. Those are his words. And not believable as a working class passenger. And according to Cameron, quote, not a leading man and not that attractive. But based on Finn's urging and based on the strength of DiCaprio's performances and What's Eating Gilbert Grape and The Basketball Diaries, uh, the director invited him to a meeting at Lightstorm's offices where he noticed that every female member of his office staff happened to be there that day and happened to be there for that meeting uh, for some reason. You know, and <laughs> DiCaprio's in there just charming the pants off of everybody. So he thought maybe there's something here, you know? Literally. <laughs> <laughs> literally so he he arranged uh for dicaprio and winslet to have a reading together so dicaprio at the time he's kind of an up-and-comer right he had earned an oscar nomination for gilbert grape and he had just been cast in baz Luhrmann's romeo and juliet opposite claire danes of course that had not come out yet but he had the the, the casting had been announced uh and he didn't actually show much interest in what appeared to be a pretty conventional romance you know uh he was also kind of a dick, it sounds like, uh, according to James Cameron and, and most other people <laughs> involved in Titanic. Uh, he was kind of just like, you know, Cameron hands him the script. They're going to do a script reading. Typical kind of thing when you're auditioning. And uh, DiCaprio says, I don't read, meaning he doesn't do script readings in auditions. Uh, not presumably that he doesn't know how to read, uh, but who knows? I don't I know. Mean <laughs> uh, but so Cameron just like shakes his hand, thanks him for coming and showed him to the door. <laughs> Cameron basically, he made it clear that he's not going to cast anyone without seeing them work. So he said in, in the conversation, it was like, Leo was like, uh, it's a bit light for, yeah. for what, or something. And he was like, yeah. and Cameron apparently was just like, well, okay, you're reading. And it was like two egos clashing. Like, yeah. just like, yeah, you're, you're gonna. Yeah, you're going to do this or you can just leave, you know. So DiCaprio reluctantly agreed to play a scene with Winslet. He's like, you know, sullenly slouched down on the couch, smoking a cigarette, just being this, you know, I don't know, just kind of being a jerk. Just kind of being this sullen, artistic actor, you know, who who's, isn't really taking this seriously. Yeah. Uh, he starts disdainfully going over the script pages. But once Cameron yelled action, he immediately transformed into Jack. Like, like a snap of the fingers, you know, wow. Cameron said, quote, he was riveting. He was the guy I wrote and you could see Kate respond, how it sparked her performance. It was instant chemistry and instant character creation. And then the scene ends and DiCaprio just slumps back down on the couch, transforming back into that punk ass who had first walked in the door, <laughs> uh, you know, so clearly he's a great actor. You know, he's he's going in and out of this role very quickly. He doesn't have to do the Jared Leto shit where he has to like live as the character for months at a time. Uh, <laughs> and Winslet at this reading, she she whispered to Cameron. She brings him to the side. And she says, even if you don't hire me, you have to hire him. Like This is Jack. <laughs> uh, but she didn't have anything to worry about. Cameron told her that day. She, he, he's like, you've got the part. This is it. You're you're my rose. Nice. Todd used to do a great impersonation of uh, Leo and what's eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah, I don't pretty think sure. Do yeah, I'm pretty sure we can't recreate it anymore. No, no we're not going to do that. No, I, I like I like doing this podcast. So I would. 
I would prefer that we <laughs> just, don't just watch the movie and understand that my rendition is spot on. <laughs> it is good. It's a, it's a good. Of all the little bits of acting I've done on this show, just understand <laughs> that my my Arnie from What's Eating Gilbert Grape blows all of it away. Yeah, yeah. So, I, mean, I just honestly, I just had to bring it up. I, I'm surprised. I just I had to bring it up because I, I can't imagine that Todd wasn't sitting over there about to explode every time he mentioned. Well, honestly, <laughs> when when I mentioned it, I would tensed up thinking that Todd might do it. <laughs> <laughs> but so alas, just, it was Gary who brought forth the piece. <laughs> <laughs> so Kate Winslet is is all but officially cast as Rose. DiCaprio, though, wasn't locked in yet. Uh, Cameron would continue to audition for the part of Jack for another three months. And uh, DiCaprio, it seemed, also didn't really want the part. Uh, He was used to playing sullen, tortured types, not a free spirit like Jack. Uh, And Fox didn't want to pay DiCaprio's fee, which was about $4 million. That's what he was asking for. They didn't think he was a big enough star for that. They wanted bigger stars like Matthew McConaughey and Chris O'Donnell, you know. Cameron was, he was running out of time. Uh, He needed... Side note, just... It's just so weird. Like we don't want Leonardo DiCaprio. We want, we want a Chris, Chris O'Donnell. We want a Chris O'Donnell type. <laughs> Get Chris O'Donnell in here if you want to sell some tickets. Uh, but so Cameron was running out of time. He needed to cast his leads in order to get the official green light on the film. So he met with DiCaprio one more time. And here's what he told him. And I'm going to read this quote word for word, even though there is a word in here that I don't like to use, but this is a direct quote from James Cameron. So just a disclaimer, I guess. Uh, He says, he's talking to DiCaprio, who, again, remember, doesn't want this part. He says, I don't think you're right for this. You keep looking for a problem, an addition, a limp. You're doing what you know, what you've gotten a claim for, playing a retard, an addict. You're looking for an acting crutch. He tried to get DiCaprio to see Jack as a type of character that may have been played by you know, a Jimmy Stewart or a Gary Cooper back in the day, the type of actor who could play a regular, just decent guy, but who was so compelling that he owned the screen. He said, uh, in this uh, continuation of that quote, when you can do that, then you're a man, my son. You want to do something more challenging? Believe me, this is the hardest part you will ever play. So basically what Cameron's doing here is he's playing into DiCaprio's ego. And it worked. Yeah, <laughs> and DiCaprio, I was going to say it's a good way to go. <laughs> it worked. And DiCaprio took the role. He basically, James Cameron, who's this, James Cameron's an alpha male. DiCaprio seems like an alpha male. He's challenging this guy. You I know? was going to say, if anybody understands ego, like you just, <laughs> right. you just, you just tell him that you don't think he could do it. Basically, you're not good enough. You can't do it. <laughs> and then he's going to try to prove that he can, you know? Right. So, and it worked though, you know, DiCaprio was cast as Jack. Of course, we all know uh, the rest of the cast was filled out by actors like Billy Zane as Rose's fiance, Caledon Hockley, who I love in this role. I think Billy Zane is a weird fucking actor. I think that he is. I was watching this. <laughs> Listen to your and friend, Billy, Billy Zane. Zane. He's a cool dude. Yeah. As I was watching this movie, I, I kept, I, and I'm sure she thought it was funny every time I said it, but I kept turning to bunny and going, Billy Zane is not a cool dude. <laughs> 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 I, I just watched it and I have not seen this movie. So I, I don't know. My my uh, impression of Billy Zane as an actor was 
I don't know. I was watching this and just like, like more, not uh, Demon Knight and stuff like that. <laughs> and I was like watching this and I was like, man, Billy Zane's pretty good, dude. Look he plays him. a good villain, but he's very like uh, mustache twisting. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like it's it's very over it. the top, but it's still really fun to watch. And he's got really <laughs> great eyebrows. Honestly, like, yeah, like also, worked, I don't hate hard Demon Knight, so you know, hey, I love Demon Knight, <laughs> <laughs> I think Demon Knight is great. Uh, so it, uh, you've got Francis Fisher as Rose's mother, uh, Kathy Bates as real life, a real life character named Molly Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Yeah, um, Kathy Bates, Cameron actually had to fight to get in the role because she it's a small role, uh, but Fox didn't want to pay her the it's like 500 grand, I think, was her her asking price for this role, um, which for the amount of screen time she has that Fox felt was pretty high, but James Cameron uh, was determined and he actually took a pay cut to be able to get her in the role. He paid part of her salary basically. Yeah. Uh, He was saying she doesn't even, you know, physically like match Molly Brown so much. It's just the attitude was like, it's the attitude that that, like swagger, you know, like, and and they, they resemble each other in that way. He said that. And I looked up Molly Brown and I was like, she looks like her. Kind of look alike. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it kind of, it's good enough as far as these things go. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's weird seeing her because she's been like popping up for me lately. It's just off the topic. I'm sorry, but I've been, you know, we always watch, we pick like, one longer dramatic series to get through and we're doing uh six feet under right now oh and, she's great on that oh she's so good yeah uh speaking of by the way jeremy sisto is also great in that and mm-hmm. i was just as you, i was reading through your notes i was like man what would jeremy sisto's career be like if he had played to jack That's yeah so right he might anyway. have, might not have done may right <laughs> which is too bad because he was good at that. he's very good in that yeah, yeah. he's great in that uh, other cast members, you've got Victor Garber as the ship's builder. Uh, I love Victor Garber. Uh, he's he's a great uh, Canadian actor. Uh, I mostly know him as Jack Bristow from Alias, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Yes. Uh, Bernard Hill as the ship's captain. Bernard Hill would later appear in Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, Bill Paxton, you guys know who he is. He plays Brock Lovett, a treasure hunter in the present day sequences. Uh, Susie Amos as Rose's granddaughter. And then Gloria Stewart as modern day Rose. Uh, so Rose, by the way, in those modern day scenes, she's supposed to be about 100 years old. Uh, I think they mentioned that she's about to turn 101 when they meet her in the film. Mm. Uh, so they actually, 80 uh, Gloria Stewart was 87 years old. They actually had to age her up to make her look older than she was uh, for the film. Uh, and Mally Finn had actually been on a mission to find retired actresses from the 30s and 40s for the role of the old Rose. Mm. Uh, Stewart had actually appeared in, she'd appeared in films like the classic James Whale horror films, The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man back in the 30s. Uh, she actually retired from acting in like the early 40s uh, up until Titanic. Uh, she had retired from from screen acting, at least. She did some stage stuff. Uh, but then for her role as Rose, she was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Role by an Actress. And to this day, remains the oldest ever nominee in that category, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. She Can wasn't in Star Trek, though. Well, That's true. <laughs> few few are. <laughs> well, before you get there, I did want to say Gloria apparently had uh, mixed feelings about coming back and having to be made older because she yeah. had retired, you know, completely from acting at least by like 30 years before that. Yeah. And uh, Cameron said she had you know, to be made to look even older. She was like, come on. Come on. Oh, I look old enough. <laughs> Who's going to question that I'm not 100 years old? Uh, yeah. You also did mention uh, Louis Bo- Bo- Bodine or Bodine. Who plays Louis, Louis Abernathy. Abernathy is Paxton's right-hand guy in the movie. He's a, he's the real deal. Not an actor, 
Cameron created a character with him in mind, but couldn't find anybody who nailed it. So he says one yeah. day he just called up Lewis at a bar and said, I can't find anybody to play you. I'm going to need you. And yeah. Lewis apparently said, whatever. You want to fuck up your movie by putting me in it? That's your business. <laughs> yeah, Lewis Abernathy is this old Texan who, uh, I don't know how him and Cameron knew each other. They'd known each other for a while, but he was a uh, screenwriter as well. And he had actually written Deep Star Six, which is another underwater movie that came out the same year as The Abyss. So I think him and Cameron, like they, they had kind of a sort of a sibling rivalry because of that, but they were buddies. Uh, but yeah, so uh, he's the big, the big bearded Texan guy with the uh, the the smiley face with the bullet hole in his head that looks kind of like the Watchmen thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. He's, also, he's, he's good in it though. Mm-hmm. I, when, when I was listening to the commentary, uh, Paxton is apparently channeling Cameron, or so James Cameron says, yeah. especially on the calls, like explaining to the money guys why it's going longer over budget. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to be fine. Yeah, I All get that. that. Um, um, I, I like to see this as Bill Paxton. Um, I like to see his, this as like the origin story for his character from Club Dread. Yeah. Uh, you know, like he eventually morphs <laughs> into that guy because by the end of this movie, he realizes, hey, it's not all about the money and the treasure hunting. It's just about like like they say in the movie, making it count. So I'm just going to go live on this island. I'm going to fucking drink margaritas all day and smoke weed. And that's going to be the rest of my life. And that's what happened in the interim between this and, and Club Dread. So <laughs> I do, well, I, it's, that, that is, it's, that is now it canon. Makes sense, but it is weird that Club Dread's come up twice now in this series. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like fucking, and you said margaritas, by the way. Fuck that guy. I wrote Pina Colada Berg 10 years <laughs> before that son of a bitch. <laughs> but uh, also we got to mention Susie Amos uh, is James Cameron's current wife. Yeah, we'll uh, get into that uh, later. Okay, all right. <laughs> on, on a future saying. episode. They, that does, they that met does, on this movie. They and, met on this movie, but they um, they don't get married for a little while. I'm just this. saying, you know how you know how James Cameron do. You know, he's still married to Linda <laughs> Hamilton at this time. Also, <laughs> uh, we'll get into later. Uh, they're very vegan, very very vegan. But, yes, but we've still got time. We've still got time to talk about Cameron and uh, her and plant based diets. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> Our whole next episode is just going to be about plant based diets. Nice. <laughs> well, Todd, what? tell us, tell us who has been trekking with you this week. Well, uh, before we get into that, let me ask you guys. I think this is the largest of of listed casts. I think this is the largest cast that he's had so far, correct? I I haven't looked, but I would guess so, because there are a there's, ton of people in this. There's say, a so, at a certain point, there are literally like over a thousand people there are there are there are up to two thousand people in one scene in this movie so yes so (laughs) i was working on these notes a little peek behind the curtain here i was working on these notes and uh spent two to three days going on these notes nice uh and then forgot to save and got up the next morning got up the next morning and they were gone so i got to do I got to do this twice. What do you use a Microsoft Word or something? Yeah, yeah. Just use Google Notes. It saves for you as you go. Well, I know oh, that now. <laughs> that's that's the real deal. It like, just saves for you. Oh, Don't worry boy. about it. But and anyways, all I have to do, do is copy have... paste Justin's notes, add my own, and they automatically save. And there anyway. you go. Sorry. Well, <laughs> this list uh, also probably my longest list. Uh, for whom I trekking with, you know, uh, it, we're, this is James Cameron. We're it's yeah. all about excess. This yeah, is what exactly. we do. <laughs> we're we're also, breaking our just, own records, just like he did. You know, we're yeah. just for the record. Google Drive is what 
people in Star Trek would use. So that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so let's dive right in here. Uh, we've got Trisha O'Neill starring as woman. Uh, she was in Star, Star Trek. Starring as woman. Yeah. Yeah. She <laughs> play, excuse me. Playing the role of woman. <laughs> she was in Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, season three, episode 15, Yesterday's Enterprise, and season six, episode 22, Suspicions. And she also did an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was season three, episode nine, Defiant. And then we have Shay Duffin, who is the pub keeper at the beginning of the movie. Uh, he was in Star Trek The Next Generation, season seven, episode 14, Sub Rosa from 1994, which is directed by Jonathan Frakes. Uh, played uh, Ned Quint in that episode. That's the episode where Dr. Beverly Crusher has sex with a ghost. Cool. So, yeah, <laughs> for a little context there. Uh, then we have Mark Raphael Truitt as Yaley, and he was in Star Trek uh, Voyager season seven, season seven, episode four, Repression. Then we have Greg Ellis, who plays uh, the Carpathia steward. Now, he's actually got some interesting credits here. We've got, first off, Deep Space Nine, uh, Season 7, Episode 25. That is the series finale, What You Leave Behind from 1999. Then he was in two Star Trek video games, Hidden Evil in 1999 and Invasion from 2000. Then he was in Star Trek 2009, the J.J. Abrams beginning of the Kelvin timeline as chief engineer Olson, AKA the red shirt. He's the know. one when they do the space dive who goes too far, too fast and <laughs> is immediately killed. Yeah. Uh, good so scene. Then, yeah, it's a great scene. Uh, then we've got Kathleen S Dunn as woman in water, not to be confused. There's a lot woman. of, of yeah. women in yeah. water, to be honest. <laughs> That's a, it's a very unspecific role. Exactly. <laughs> well, she actually probably has one of the most unique Star Trek credits that I've seen in our time doing Who Am I Trekking With. She was also in Star Trek 2009, but she was behind the camera. She was a dialect coach during pre-production for Chris Hemsworth. Interesting. Who plays Kirk's dad. Yeah, trying um, to teach him not to talk in an Australian accent. I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, speaking of women, once again, Jeanette Goldstein as the Irish mommy. We've covered her uh, credits in the franchise so far. And then we've got Barry Denon, who is the praying man. He's got three Star Trek credits. They are all video games. Hidden Evil in 1999, Armada 2 in 2001, and Bridge Commander. How many goddamn Star Trek video games are there? There are a <laughs> so <shit> many. <laughs> so many. <laughs> and then we've got Eric Holland, who plays Olaf Dahl. He was in Star Trek, the OG. Uh, season 3, oh. episode 11, Wink of an Eye from 1968 as Ekor. And then we've got Michael Ensign, who plays Benjamin Guggenheim. He was in Next Generation, Season 4, Episode 15, First Contact. Uh, Deep Space Nine, Season 1, Episode 16, The Forsaken. Uh, Voyager, Season 3, Episode 5, False Prophets. And Enterprise, Season 2, Episode 14, Stigma. If you need further clarification of who he is, on the sitcom Friends, he threw away Ross's Thanksgiving leftover sandwich. Oh, no. <laughs> there you go. That fucking guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we've got Nicholas Cascone as Bobby Buell. Uh, he was in Next Generation Season 2, Episode 15, Pen Pals, as Ensign Davies. That was the episode that also featured uh, young uh, Miss Cox that we discussed in, uh, in Terminator 2. 
then uh, he was also in Deep Space Nine, season three, episode four, Equilibrium. And then last, but certainly not least, Mr. David Warner as Spicer Lovejoy, uh, Cal's uh, nefarious bodyguard. Bodyguard. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll call him a bodyguard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he was in, he started his work in the franchise in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, directed uh, by Mr. William Shatner. Yeah, not uh, a he, good one. Yeah, I know. It's not one of the good ones. <laughs> uh, he played St. Uh, John Talbot in that. And then he was in Star Trek six the undiscovered country in 1991 that's a good one yeah that is a good one uh playing chancellor gorkon and then he would reprise that role in the video game star trek klingon academy from 2000 Mm. uh but he is probably most well known in the star trek franchise for his two episode stint on star trek the next generation chain of command that was season six episode 10 and 11 uh, Chain of Command parts one and two from 1992 as the cruel Cardassian interrogator Gull Madrid, who tries to get Picard to see that there are five lights when we know that there are only four lights. Uh, there's a lot of memes about that. Yes, there are tons <laughs> of memes about that. Uh, in when None of them uh, good. He noted uh, that he took over the role of Gull Madrid on three days notice. Wow. And he couldn't learn his lines that fast. So he had to use cue cards. Huh. Said every line I said, I actually was reading over Patrick Stewart's shoulder. Wow! Uh, but it worked out. It's uh, very well known. Uh, to be to be honest, I actually have a Blu-ray of just that two-parter series. Wow! It, yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> so uh, David Warner passed away uh, from lung cancer at Denville Hall, an entertainment industry care home. I uh, think the think the British Cedar Sinai in uh, North. Wood Northwood London on July 24th 2022 uh as of today that was three weeks ago and it was just five days shy of his 81st birthday and he mm-hmm. is survived by his son Luke so Mr. Warner thank you so much for all the wonderful nerdy goodness you gave us over the years and uh Godspeed sir I and that's everybody in Star Trek. But I really appreciate that deep dive into the career of uh, David Warner, a great character actor. He's, you know, he's only got a few lines in Titanic, yeah, uh, and only a few minutes of screen time in a three-hour movie. Uh, probably less screen time than what uh, time you just took to, to say all that. <laughs> <laughs> to be and, fair, and to be yet, fair, <laughs> and yet you did not mention Scream Two. And you did not mention John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. I know. Look, look, <laughs> folks. What is going he on? He started here? like his first credit, 1962. The dude worked for 60 years. I boiled it down to two pages of some really nerdy shit. So <laughs> <laughs> please, please go deep dive on all his work. He he turned in some great performances. Over he really look- is great as evil genius in Time Bandits. I, I adore that movie. And I think he's a great villain and he's really fun. The working theory is, according to an episode of Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson, that uh, there was a poll taken a long time ago that people were asked, like, what is the event that you would go back to if you could travel into the past? And the overwhelming winning moment was the sinking of the Titanic. Why would you want to do that? I don't know. (laughs) But then there was this theory. You know how this is going to go. That... What if the reason the Titanic sank is because so many people went back to it and <laughs> on the ship? <laughs> Here's the, the, ship. the truth is, the reason the Titanic sank is because Jack and Rose were making out and the lookouts got distracted. And they're looking down. They're going, oh, look at them. They're warmer than we are. And then they didn't see the fucking 
iceberg in time. If Jack yeah. and Rose had not been making out right underneath them, distracting them for a good minute, then maybe they could have turned the the ship a little bit quicker. That's canon, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it, like the overarching theme is like love ruins everything. Well, yeah. Getting on in our story of Titanic. So, so even though they had signed on to fund the dives to the Titanic wreckage, by the spring of 1996, Fox had yet to officially greenlight the movie. Uh, it was becoming pretty obvious at this point that Cameron's original estimate of an $80 million production was, uh, let's say, unrealistic. Uh, Cameron knew that his Titanic movie was going to be a tough sell. It, it wasn't the kind of movie that was a guaranteed hit. It was a period romance where, as we mentioned before, Everyone knows the ending. Uh, and it was also far outside the boundaries of what Cameron had produced before this. Uh, there were no car chases. There were no aliens. There were no robots. There's no sci-fi. There's no real like action, not by traditional standards. So he and Ray Sanchini, you know, Ray Sanchini is his head of uh, Lightstorm at this point. They went to Fox with an unusual idea. Cameron would take a cut to both his front end pay and his share of the movie's box office grosses. Uh, this movie was, this is a labor of love for James Cameron, and he was willing to take a pay cut if it meant getting the film made. So under this deal, if Titanic made a lot of money, Cameron could still kind of catch up on what, what he was bringing in. But he'd only get his full back-end pay if the movie made a considerable amount of money for Fox, like an, an obscene amount of money. And that's the only way he's going to get what he would normally get paid otherwise. Hmm. And then at the end of May, this is again, this is 1996. At the end of May, Peter Chernin gave Titanic the green light officially. You're, you're, we're green lighting this on a budget of $110 million under three conditions. One, it has to have a PG 13 rating. Two, another studio is going to have to kick in part of the budget to kind of share the risk. And three, they wanted it released in the summer of 1997. Well, the first two were easy. First of all, this isn't a movie that really lends itself to an R rating other than some, you know, tasteful nudity. There's nothing really R rated about this movie at all. Uh, and Paramount Pictures would end up happily signing on as the film's domestic distributor with Fox retaining the international rights to the film. But that summer of 97 release date might be a little bit tougher. Uh, first of all, we know James Cameron's not great at, uh, at hitting his release dates by this point. Uh, but also, like, this is May of 96. You're talking just over a year. You're talking 14 months away, and they haven't started filming yet. Jeez. So the question, would James Cameron make that date? Well, no, he's no, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, but why he doesn't make that date is a story for another day. Uh, for the, only the second time ever in Cinema Shock history, we are splitting up this into two episodes because... Uh, there's a lot of story behind the story of Titanic. Mm -hmm. So we're we, instead of sitting here for five hours or whatever it's going to take to tell this story, we're going to give you a little taste with this episode. We're going to get into filming and releasing everything else. You're going to get your further viewing. You're going to get your somebody needs a nap, all of that on our next episode, which we'll be, re be releasing not in two weeks, but next week here on the podcast feed. So that's and make no now, mistake. Though. And make no mistake, we are we are going to sit here for the five hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> yeah. still recording. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but we'll for you. still be here. And uh, so, 
Yeah, let me let me also not forget to leave you just a, just a little fun fact. Kate Winslet had a few simple rules for Leonardo DiCaprio, by the way, when you get to the point where they start kissing, kissing scenes, no coffee, no, no coffee. onions, no onions, no garlic, no garlic, no smoking prior mm-hmm. to shooting. No, he's not going to do any of that. Yeah, DiCaprio agreed, <laughs> but would uh, then proceed to do exactly all of those things. All of that. On purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh his nickname from Winslet was Stinky Leo. Stinky Leo, not the most <laughs> creative of nicknames. No. <laughs> uh, she, and, excel, uh, she excels in other things. Come on. Allegedly, Leo would also love to f- wear his big coat around and then fart inside of it and wave it <laughs> in her face. I, I, I'm liking Leonardo DiCaprio more and more. The more you talk. <laughs> so, Honestly. just uh, you know, that a just a little light. Uh, it's a little whiff back. of just a little whiff of what you're going to get on the next episode. <laughs> right. We'll have more about Leonardo DiCaprio's farts and smoking <laughs> when we come back next week. Uh, garlic burps and all. <laughs> it really lends a whole new, different feeling when you're watching them make out in this movie, knowing that she was just tasting cigarette ash and garlic. The right, whole time. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like smoking. Eating like the fucking worst hamburger ever or something, <laughs> like drinking coffee with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, it's time to go make out with Kate Winslet. Here I go. <laughs> uh, Luckily, it. it's a greasy burger. I'm going to take a shit in my coat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week, guys. We will be back next week with the second half of our story on Titanic. Um, you guys want to tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet in the meantime? I am at this is Gary Horn. And uh, you can find more Star Trek goodness on my podcast at Computer Resume on all of the socials. It's the Computer Resume podcast where we chronicle the entire Star Trek franchise for some reason in chronological order. And uh, you can find me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, D&D Beyond. And Discord. I I, I I mean, are you actually using Letterboxd? Uh, very seldom. <laughs> I'm using the shit out of Letterbox. Gary, you're doing great word. at Letterbox, honestly. You're, <laughs> I'm, you're I'm, doing great. I'm, I'm enjoying everything. I'm enjoying following along with your film adventures. Yeah. Even though you're watching some weird shit. It's, it's which a, I admire. It's, it's I, quite I the mix. Um, it is. It is. Um, no, uh, I, I will say this too, just to throw it out there, you guys, if you are, uh, by, by the time you're listening to this on August 27th and 28th, uh, the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, it's going to be in St. Louis, Missouri. If we've got anybody around that area at the Chase Ballroom, uh, Chase Park Plaza Hotel, downtown St. Louis, we're going to be there. Pay per view, it's going to be a lot of fun. Tickets are on sale now. There's going to be a fan fest, lots of uh, the legendary wrestlers are going to be there. Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins will be there. He'll be hanging out and walking around doing weird shit like Billy Corgan does. and and uh, it'll be it'll be a blast. You guys should come out. And uh, if you have any slight interest in professional wrestling, now's the time to jump on with the NWA. This is NWA seventy four. It's the seventy fourth anniversary of the National Wrestling wow, Alliance. That's wild, yeah. That's but cool. everything, you know, it's like a it's a good spot because everything is just going to kind of it's like the WrestleMania for the NWA. So yeah. everything's going to kind of reset from here. It's so, like the season finale, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you can watch that and then. Go up the next for the next season, season fresh. Yeah. yeah, I love that. 
and you can and, and did you mention this is pro wrestling gary i did T-I-P-W? not it's uh, at tipw show that's my wrestling podcast but a lot of my stuff is focused and having to focus more and more on at nwa so you can follow NWA. us on all those things and you can find me at Justin underscore Bishop. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. I think I'm probably the most uh, active on Letterboxd than any of those. Uh, you can also find the podcast at Cinema underscore Shock. We're on uh, you know all the social medias. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Discord. Find us at CinemaShock.net. You can find all of our episodes there. Links to our merch. Links to our Discord. All that stuff. Uh, join that Discord if you want to chat with us uh me sometimes gary and every now and then todd will pop in when i guilt trip him into doing so (laughs) (laughs) but until next time may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other i'm not gonna do my normal sign off but instead that's for the next episode but but instead i have this all right all right all right i mean I got everything I need right here with me. I got air in my lungs, a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning, not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet or where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge. Now here I am on the grandest ship in the world, having champagne with you fine people. I figure life's a gift. I don't intend on wasting it. You don't know what hand you're going to get dealt next. You learn to take life as it comes to you to make each day count. <laughs> Honestly, that scene in particular now makes me wish that Matthew McConaughey was in it. I was going to say, <laughs> it's like, you could, that's, you could totally that's see doing, that. Yeah, that's him. You might as well have just said, just got to keep living. Just L-I-V-I-N. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm done. All right. We're out for this week. Come back next week. We'll talk more Titanic. It only gets ah. better. Bye, everybody. Bye.